Hello, this is Bittersweet Apple Podcast. Welcome back to my podcast channel. It's been a while since my last podcast, and I'm sorry about that. I've been involved in other things. Anyway, tonight's topic has to do with the paranormal, in a way. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Bigfoot or Sasquatches, some people know them. Do you believe in Bigfoot or Sasquatch? Have you seen him? Have you uh, read the stories? Have you, do you know somebody that has spotted him? Well, we're here to talk about that. And we're gonna start out with how the Bigfoot legend began. A small news item in 1958 led to the modern version of the mythical wild man. What exactly are the origins of the Bigfoot Sasquatch legend? In 1958, journalist Andrew Ginsoli of the Humboldt Times highlighted a fun, if dubious, letter from a reader about loggers in Northern California who discovered mysteriously large footprints. Maybe we have a relative of the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, he wrote jokingly in his uh, September 21st column alongside the letter. Later, Gonzoli said he simply thought the mysterious footprints made a good Sunday morning story, but to his surprise, it fascinated readers. In response, Gonzoli and fellow Humboldt Times journalist Betty Allen published follow-up articles about the footprints. Reporting the name loggers had had given the so-called creature who left the tracks Bigfoot, and so a legend was born. There are various wild man myths all over the world, says Joshua Buzz, Booz, author of Bigfoot: The Life and Times of a Legend in Western in Western Canada. State Ailes First Nation Sasquatch. Uh, the Sasquatch, the supposed origin of the word Sasquatch. However, the modern U.S. concept of Bigfoot can be traced quite directly to the Humboldt Times stories in 1958. People later go back and dig through old newspapers and stuff and find scattered reports of a wild man here, a wild man there, he says, but it doesn't collapse into a general discussion until the 1950s. Even though loggers blame acts of vandalism on Bigfoot, Alan thought that most of them didn't really believe in the creature. It seemed to her that they were just passing along stories with a legendary flavor. Still, the stories spread to newspapers all over the country, and the TV show Truth or Consequences offered $1,000 to anyone who could prove the existence of Bigfoot. Who was making the huge 16 tracks, 16 inch tracks in the vicinity of Bluff Creek? Gonzoli wrote in one of his columns that October are the tracks a human or hoax? Or are they the actual marks of a huge but harmless wild man traveling through the wilderness? Can this be some legendary sized animal? Once Bigfoot's story went public, it became a character in men's adventure 
magazines and cheap trade paperback novels. In these stories, he, for, for Bigfoot, was definitely a he, was a primal dangerous creature out of the past who lurked in the modern wilderness. By the 1970s, pseudo-documentaries were investigating his existence and films were portraying him as a sexual predator. In the 1980s, Bigfoot showed his softer side. It became associated with environmentalism and a symbol of the wilderness that we need to preserve. Buzz Booth said, one example is the 1987 movie Harry and the Hendersons, which portrayed Bigfoot as a friendly, misunderstood creature in need of protection from John Lithgow and his family. So why has the Bigfoot legend persisted for over 60 years? It takes on its own momentum because it is a media icon. Just as no one really needs to explain that characters who turn into wolves during a full moon are werewolves, no one needs to explain who a hairy manic walking out of the woods would be. It's just something not easy to refer to. That would be Bigfoot. And that's one reason the legend of Bigfoot was born. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have seen that famous photo that was first... Uh, published, it shows what looks like Bigfoot walking in the background, and there's woods behind him, and then there's wood, piles of wood in front of him with a big log that goes across the, across the picture, and it looks like he's, what, I think on a beach or something, looks like a beach, anyway. That famous photo is the most popular photo and most famous photo of Bigfoot. And I think it says here, Bob Gimlin was the man who took the photograph. The man who created Bigfoot. Bob Gimlin was a small town cowboy when his friend coaxed him into hunting the famous mythical creature 50 years ago. Today, as the legend of Bigfoot has grown, Gimlin is viewed by the community of believers around the country as something of a prophet. For weeks in the fall of 1967, the Cowboys rode from sunrise to sunset in search of the creature no one had ever captured on film. Two men, two rodeo men from Washington's apple country, they traveled to Northern California's thick forest. They had read headlines of unidentifiable footprints. The smaller cowboy was driven by a long obsession with the mythic beast known as Bigfoot. The other liked to see things for himself. One late October afternoon near Bluff Creek, the men trundled on horseback, half a day's ride from the nearest signs of civilization. The sun shone bright, lighting the leaves all around them in a grand finale of orange, red, and yellow. Roger Patterson rode in front, pausing his quarter horse to point to his lens towards the leaves. The film Chattering Inside is rented 60mm Cine Kodak camera. When he finished, he tucked the camera into his saddlebag, leaving the leather flap open. Bob Gimlin brought up the rear. He rode a quarter horse, leading a pony 
loaded with supplies behind him. Patterson navigated around a bend where a large tree had fallen and jammed up the nearby creek. Its root system upturned and exposed like blind fingers reaching for an anchor. The horses saw it first. Patterson reared, kicking and protesting, then Gimlin's. Less than 100 feet away, the men saw why. A hulking, gorilla-like figure, covered in dark hair, hurried on two legs along the creek bed. Its sloped head and torso were pushed forward, its upper back hunched, thigh muscles rippling, long arms swinging, breast exposed. Patterson scrambled off, his spooked animal holding its reins just long enough to reach inside his saddlebag for the camera. Gimlin, a cowboy famous through the Yakima Valley for taming wild colts and running in breakneck suicide races in which riders careened down, careened down steep slopes, dropped the pack horse's rope and gripped the reins of his frightened pony to steady it. Patterson scrambled across the uneven ground, waving the camera in one hand, the film blurry as he ran. He stopped to crouch and steady himself, then turned the lens on this strange figure, the camera shaking from his breathing. Bob, cover me, he yelled over his shoulder to Gimlin, who rode the, toward the creek, dismounting his horse and drawing his rifle. The picture steadied as the creature mid-stride turned to look over its shul- right shoulder, just a glance before it disappeared into the forest. A skunky, rank odor hung heavy in the air. The whole affair was over in less than a minute. The final 59.5 second film, which the men would airmail back home to be developed, would soon become the world-famous Patterson-Gimlin film, arguably one of the most scrutinized pieces of footage, of video footage ever made. It, it, it is the cryptozoological crypto equivalent to the Cass Kennedy assassinations Zap Ruder film. The film met immediate criticism, accusing Patterson and Gimlet of being master pranksters who simply filmed a man in an ape suit and laid fake footprints in the mud. The film tore Patterson, Patterson's and Gimlet's friendship apart. Patterson partnered with his brother-in-law, Al the Atlee, to take the film on a national tour as a way to raise funds for a full-fledged expedition back at the Bluff Creek. The three took equal shares in the film, but soon Gimlin felt edged out and sold his share of the rights for less than $10 to another Bigfoot researcher. After five years estranged, Patterson and Gimlin made amends in 1972 as Patterson lay on his deathbed, dying of cancer at age 38. Patterson apologized for ousting Gimlin, pleading with him that when he recovered, that they would go back to California and catch Bigfoot. He died the next day. More than 40 years later, the film has never been conclusively debunked. It has withstood scrutiny from scientists, forensic analysts, Hollywood special effects experts, and costume designers. No one can quite explain it, except for those who believe in folklore. In that time, Bigfoot has evolved into a full-fledged American myth propagated by National Congregation 
of believers who believed Gimlin as a kind of a prophet. Meeting Bob Gimlin to a Bigfooter is like meeting the President of the United States to an American, says Cindy Rose Caddo, a researcher and author, or what meaning the Pope is to a Catholic. The 84-year cowboy wore Bob Gimlin's hat and glasses and an off-white coat with Bob embroidered on the in blue on thread at the chest. His boots stated that their, their intentions across the tile entryway of roadside diner in Union Gap in central Washington, pausing as he held the door for an elderly woman in a pink jacket. Come on in, young lady, he said in his baritone voice, all campfire smoke and truck engines. Bob Gimlin wears big hats and belt, big belt buckles and drives a pickup, a big pickup. He talks s slow with a heavy drawl and seems to find a way to turn almost any conversation toward horses. In a booth with vinyl seats, Gimlin ordered coffee and dumped in two creams and told the waitress he wouldn't be eating. For the next six hours, he told his story, who he was before he saw Bigfoot, who he became after, and why he stayed quiet for four decades after the film's debut. Before he had ever heard of Bigfoot, Gimlin had led the life of a man who feared nothing, who thrived on dares and several times cheated death. The first time he was at age seven when his appendix burst. He missed a year of school as he recovered in the Ozark Mountains cabin in Missouri, where he was born. In 1940, with the promise of sprawling green ranch lands and orchards set against the towering cascades, pulled his farmer father and pulled his farmer father and mother westward. In Washington, Gimlin roped wild horses with native boys on the near Yakima Reservation, crawling onto their backs and hanging on for dear life. I was ready to ride, he says. Even at a young age, I wanted to ride anything that bucked, jumped, moved, ran, or whatever. He became a natural rodeo man, quick to bounce back, never letting a cast or sling keep him from a horse. He raced caravans and chariots through mountain passes, hurtled down cliff sides. He gained a reputation as a daredevil. He, he, though he declined Evil Knievel's offer to join him in for a profit. At age 18, Gimel joined the Army Reserves. Later, he enlisted in the Navy. In the Navy. After two tours in the Korean War and three other sailors were in a car accident that left one dead when the driver smashed into a power pole. His head slammed into the dash and the motor of the car pinned his body in the vehicle. I lost half my face, says Gimlin, who underwent several plastic surgeries to repair his nose. He spent two years recovering in a hospital in California. Once he received the discharge papers, Gimlin headed back to home to Yakima. Life, in, life for Gimlin continued as on a normal course. He married, had children, divorced, and then married the sassiest thing I'd ever met, his wife of 52 years, Judy. In 1967, Gimlin, then 35, was scraping together a living, driving trucks, roofing, and riding and taming horses. There was nothing significant about the day as he pulled into a Union Gap service station and ran into his old pal, old rodeo pal, Roger, Roger Patterson. Patterson was recovering from a bout with cancer. As he spoke, P 
Patterson told Gimlin of his interest in, in supposed Bigfoot sightings. He said, let me show you something, Gimlin recalls. He went over to the truck and brought out the plaster cast of a Bigfoot. Patterson asked Gimlin if he would be interested in searching Mount St. Helens on horseback with him for evidence of Bigfoot. I said, Roger, I just don't have time. By the late 1960s, Bigfoot had been tromping through northwestern Laura for hundreds of years. Several Native American tribes tell of looming furry beasts reeking of scorched hair who stole trout from fishermen. In the early 20th century, newspaper articles reported sightings read like spooky stories around a campfire. In one such report from 1924, a clan of rock-throwing ape men ambushed a group of miners in, on Mount St. Helens. The place is now called Ape Canyon. Skeptics said that the beasts were just YMCA campers playing a prank. Ivan Sanderson's 1961 book, Abominable Snowman, Legend Comes to Life, read like the staff, stuff of a B-movie. But there are a few opportunities for Patterson to commune with other believers. So he talked to Gimlin. The men formed a bond, riding horses through Washington's backcountry. Patterson continued to regale Gimlin with Bigfoot lore, playing him recorded testimonies of real-life encounters and lending him books on the topic, despite Gimlin's insistence that he did not care. Patterson self-published a book in 1966 titled, Do Obama Snowmen of America Really Exist? And in August of 1967, Patterson told Gimlin about a logging road construction crew spotted tracks and having their equipment inexplicably disassembled deep in the Six Rivers National Forest. He begged Gimlin to drive the two men and their horses to Northern California to search. Gimlin was skeptical that anything existed, but he was intrigued, and he wasn't the sort of man to turn away from a good adventure. I wanted to see these footprints and that these people talked about, he says. The film the men produced gave the murky myth shape. Suddenly, Bigfoot was manifested in flesh and blood. It had a loping gait, and with the twist of his torso looked over its shoulder before disappearing into the wilderness. It even had a name, Patty. Patty arguably created the Bigfoot industry. Today, the ape-like figure froze in its signature turn, adorns car air fresheners and infant onesies that read, Believe. It looks back from coffee cups, Christmas ornaments, guitar picks, and band-aids. There's a patty-shaped chia pet. Bigfoot even has a home reality TV show. Animal Planet launched Finding Bigfoot in 2011, starring Washington's Bigfoot Researchers Organization. Members led guided backward expeditions with a price tag of up to $500 throughout the U.S. where participants scour the forest for a look at the fabled beast. But looking back on the trip today, Gimlin wishes he'd said no, that he'd turned away from, the Patterson, from Patterson that day at the service station and never looked back. The trip, that trip to California changed him. It ruined me. By 1972, Patterson had died. Gimlin alone faced the scourge of detractors that were emerging around the country. Some even confronted he and his wife in their hometown 
Yakimai was the place where Gimlin had become known for his fearlessness and strength, and suddenly he was seen as crazy. His word, his handshake, currency around this part of the state, was in doubt. My wife was a teller at the Savings and Loan Institution. Of course she was sitting right there, and the public would come in and make smart remarks, Gimlin says. This went on and on until she became, came home crying. She said, I'm not tough enough. A couple times we were going to split up over this. Some nights, cars would screech by Gimlin's house. They'd come driving in my driveway at all times of the night and go, Bob, we want to go out Bigfoot hunting, he says. They'd speed away before he could run outside. The couple felt isolated, and Gimlin found himself for the first time in a predicament that came to define his life for decades. If he acknowledged that he saw Bigfoot, he was the town loon. If he stayed quiet, people assumed he was lying. I can understand why they don't believe it, because I didn't believe him either. Gimlin recalls telling John Green, a prominent Canadian Bigfoot researcher, on a phone call during this period, but I saw one, and I know what I saw, and I know it wasn't a man in a suit. It couldn't have been. In 1968, after Patterson and Gimlin returned, the Gimlins swore to never speak of Bigfoot again, but the, big, but the video was out, and Gimlin was and remained stuck in the center of the debate, anchored like the sun in this growing solar system, with believers and skeptics orbiting around him. Reports of sightings filtered from, in from all over Northeast. Bigfoot was traipsing through lush coastal woods and Rocky Mountains, sides in Oregon. Its glowing red eyes peered from the understory in Olympic National Forest in Washington. It stalked the dark divide, the massive roadless area between Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams. It ran across the road near Vancouver. It left footprints in the snow outside Walla Walla. I consider Bob Gimlin a liar. I think he's a con artist. Believers cropped up in Texas and Ohio, and then as far afield as New York, Georgia, and Florida. In the past 40 years, people have produced supposed Bigfoot hairs, DNA tests, footprints, and piles of scat, not to mention the countless photographs and video clips, most of which have turned out to be hoaxes. As scientific evidence of the creature's existence, to many, the notion of belief is irrelevant among the myroids, myroids, my ride stories, sightings, and artifacts. No, I don't believe in Bigfoot, says Jeff Muldrum, an anthropology and anatomy professor at Idaho State University, who is one of the foremost experts on foot morphology in the world. He was 11 years old in 1968 when he watched Patterson Gimlin's Bigfoot walk across the screen at the Spokane Coliseum in eastern Washington. Today, he's the keeper of the largest archive of Bigfoot print cast and author of the book Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. Belief usually connotes a position of faith, a conviction held in the absence of evidence, Meldrum says. I, for one, am convinced by the evidence. I have studied it at length. Cynics, however, don't just question the evidence. They question Patterson's and Gimlin's credibility. In 2004, Greg Long, author of one of the most off-sided pieces of skepticism about the Patterson-Gimlin film, 
of a book called The Making of Bigfoot, Tonta Gimlin, from the final pages of his book. Will he ever confess? Long wrote. I'm going to be blunt with you, Long said recently over the phone. I consider Bob Gimlin a liar, and I think he's a con artist. Well, but Long's arguments seem just as flimsy as Believer's proof. His book is filled with circumstantial evidence. A costume maker named Philip Morris in the early 2000s said he sold Patterson the suit, but couldn't provide any evidence of the sale. A Yakima man named Bob Hiranimus said he was the one that wore it. Neither Neither claim is backed by concrete proof. They can't exist, therefore they don't exist, is the message Mildred has received from skeptics, he says. That was the actual report hurled at me by anthropology colleague from an anthropology colleague. With Bigfoot having grown in, into an industry, Long says that there's no reason to believe anyone invested in the debate is telling the truth. They need it to be real. The people who truly believe and search, he adds, are driven emotionally, I believe, to find Bigfoot. In the face of skepticism and mockery, a large community of believers views Gimlin as the original seer, the man who witnessed the unthinkable, who lived to tell the tale, and who has been harassed for what he swore was real. These people can congregate at Bigfoot conventions around the world to swap stories, trade evidence, gather techniques, and commune with kinfolk. Together they could be out about their beliefs. Gimlin first appeared at a convention in California in 2003. Though his years of silence, Gimlin maintained contact with several prominent Bigfoot aficionados, however you say that, including Swiss researcher René Dahidin, a Russian author named Dmitry Bayanov, after years of urging Gimlin to come to Russia to speak about the film, Bianov arranged to come to America. With Green's help, the pair convinced Gimlin to attend a Willow Creek International Bigfoot Symposium, an event that promised to bring all the biggest scientific names into one room, including Jane Goodall, a primologist, a primatologist and Bigfoot believer who canceled her appearance last month in the same area where Patterson and Gimlin made their film decades before. To Gimlin, walking into the conference was like entering a church. It's not a fairy tale to them. It's serious business. When I met these people down there, they accepted me with what you call open arms. There, Gimlin spoke of Bigfoot for the first time in years. There wasn't a sound in the room while I was talking, he says. Though I can't really believe this, this is... This is almost like seeing Bigfoot. God, I felt like I was ten feet tall. When he finished, the room rose to its feet. They just stood up and plotted, Gimlin says. I thought, why have I gone 35 years through a bunch of ridicule? Gimlin appears at conventions across the country. He signs shirts and plaster, foot casts, and tells and retells the story of he and Patterson's encounter. He's no stranger to standing ovations. They want to talk to me. They want to tell me about their experience, he says. This turned my whole life around. At home in central Washington, however, Gimlin is no celebrity. 
When I visited him this past spring, we took a drive through Wapato, just south of the Yakima, to see the house where he grew up, only to find a field of weeds where it once stood. His high school gym, his high school is gone too. Pandarius and Taquirius, that the streets, Taquirius, Taquirius, that the streets he once knew. As he idled on one street, people on the sidewalk turned to look at the cowboy in his truck, staring at him as if he had just dropped in from outer space. Gibbon says days are typical re retired rancher stuff. He wakes at 5 a.m. every morning on his modest 1,500-square-foot home that sits on two acres in town. He leases land around the Akimat area where he grazes his seven horses. He mows his pastures on a riding lumber and tends to his garden of cucumbers and tomatoes. At night, he watches UFC fights. He's a member of several local equestrian clubs. Three days a week, Gimlin drives his black pickup with one with a Bigfoot sticker and a tint of a backwood and Bigfoot air fisher tucked into a cup holder into town for physical therapy. In the 1990s, Gimlin was bucked off a horse and told by a doctor he'd never ride again. I proved I could do it, he says, but then in the early 2000s, he went sailing off another horse. He had, his, he had his bicep removed from his left arm and nearly lost all ability to use it. He lists light dumbbells now in an attempt to regain some feeling. Every couple of months, he travels to another address, Congregation of the Faithful. People of every age and shape packed inside a Portland beer hall on a Friday night this past January to see Gimlin speak. He told the story he's told a hundred times before, from the beginning, bumping into Patterson at the service station. The bright fall leaves, the creature glancing over his shoulder, the conversation to Patterson's bedside hours before he died. Afterwards, Gimlin stuck around to take pictures and sign autographs. A boy in a red plaid shirt and a cowboy hat holding a 16-millimeter Cinecodet camera like the one used to shoot the Patterson-Gimlin film and a plaster footprint cast approached him for a photo. A few months later, while doing research for this article, I absentmindedly searched Patterson-Gimlin on Instagram. A fa familiar face pops up on my screen. It's that boy from the, in the cowboy hat from January who got a photo with his hero, Bob Gimlin. The boy's account is practically devoted to Bigfoot. The boy's account is practically devoted to Bigfoot. There are several photos from the Portland event, old pictures of Roger Patterson, shots of book covers and adorned with furry beasts, and more of giant foot casts on his bedroom carpet. It's just one small example of Skimlin's size, outsized impact on American lore. The internet has exposed people to the Patterson and Gimlin's journey in ways unimaginable to Gimlin. And, can use to, and continues to enchant new generations of believers. Whether or not any of the stories are true, Bigfoot is alive and well. In large part, that's because Gimlin, the non-believer, an unlikely champion of the myth, helped catch a glimpse of, of it on film. In one post, the boy splits the frame into thirds, each one, each filling each with photos of Robert Roger Patterson's gravestone. We never forget he was our Bigfoot hunter. He writes, a portion of another caption read, read, I met Bob Gimlin. It was the best day ever. Correction, a previous version of this story incorrectly stated that Gimlin rode a pony 
on the Bigfoot hunt in Northern California. And a previous version of the story incorrectly stated that Gimlin's mother was part Apache. That's the story of, of Gimlin and Patterson and one of the most famous photographs of Bigfoot that the world has ever seen. I have seen this photograph. I've even seen video of this, and it's so creepy, you know, but, but cool at the same time. Now, have anybody of you out there ever seen sightings of Bigfoot? If so, where were you at when you saw this? Do you have uh, pictures of it? Do you? What was your experience like? Were you out actually in the area where he was, and did you um, get a whiff of the, the scent that is supposed to be associated with Bigfoot? Burnt hair or whatever it is. I've heard several different things about Bigfoot. How are you supposed to... This one described him as having red eyes. Others described him as having yellow eyes. And some of... But the one thing that always sticks throughout all the stories is that there's a stench about him that when you see him even from a distance you're supposed to smell this odor that he has now let me tell you a story now I've always been a huge fan of the paranormal and i I don't necessarily believe in everything I've read about that, it, that interests me about the paranormal, but um, in this case, I believe I believe in Bigfoot because I've seen what looks like Bigfoot. Now let me tell you. Let's see. It was about. 36 years ago, <clears throat> I lived on the coast in Oregon. It was around, <clears throat> I, I lived in uh, a little town called Port Orford. It's the furthest point uh, out on the Oregon coast that you can go. As far as towns and stuff go. Anyway, I lived out there, <clears throat> and the nearest big town was Coos Bay, which I went to often because <clears throat> I took some college courses out there, plus all the shopping was in Coos Bay, and the shopping, the big shopping, like they had at that time, not when I first moved there, but... A couple of years after I'd been there, they put in a big uh, Walmart in Coos Bay, and anyway, all the, everyone went to Coos Bay to shop. Now, if you wanted to do uh, shopping for little things and 
like souvenirs and things like that. Everyone uh, that lived in Port Orford usually went to Bandon. Bandon's such a cool, such a cool little town. It has lots of uh, souvenirs and stuff like that down by the marina. And I, I just love going there. Anyway, on with the story. So I'm coming back from Coos Bay this one summer. It was, I want to say around, oh, I want to say late July, maybe early August. I'm not positive on that. But anyway, it had been raining. And, I mean, it had been raining pretty hard. But by the time I came back from Coos, I was on my way home from Coos Bay. By the time I, uh, it didn't start raining until I left Coos Bay. And I was on my way home, and I had been, uh, I had already been through Bandon. I was on my way home, and I was, excuse me, I was alone on the road that night. And it was raining, and... I mean, I was completely alone. There was not a car within five miles of me. And anyway, I was just going along. I was, I had the heat cranked. I, so I guess it was later in August, maybe September, because I had to, had to have the heat going. Anyway, I was going along. I had the window up. I was listening to music, plus the heat was on. So a lot going on as far as your hearing goes. And it was raining. I was alone on the road. I was just watching my driving, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this thing runs across the road. Well, what would call it running, walking very fast, is going across the road. I had, I mean, it was several yards ahead of me, but it scared me so bad. I slammed on my brakes to, and I mean, it wasn't so far away that if I had not slammed on my brakes, I wouldn't have hit it, but it scared me where I slammed on the brakes, no matter what. I slammed on my brakes, and I just sat there, because there was no traffic coming. I sat there, and I was watching this, this thing going across the road. And this, this thing was tall, very tall, so tall, and it was covered in hair from head to toe, and it had huge long arms, and it walked like, um, it walked swinging its arms, and I don't know how to describe the gait. It was, it walked heavy, kind of heavy like, like some people do. And anyway, but this wasn't a person. There was no way this is a person. And I was, I'm watching this creature walk across the road in front of me. And as he was just about getting ready to pass by the car, he stops half a second 
and turns to look at me. And all I saw was these yellow eyes. They were like yellow eyes. They were kind of glowing, almost. But I, I think that was from because of the headlights. They seemed, seemed to glow because of that. Anyway, for half a second, he just looked right at me. Then he turned his head and kept on going. And I was, I'm just sitting there staring in disbelief at this creature. And I, my heart's going a mile a minute. I mean, my heart is beating so fast. And I'm sitting there terrified what I'm seeing. Afraid to move because I didn't know what this thing was going to do, you know. If I moved, would he going to get upset and come at me or something? Anyway, I'm sitting there watching him. And then he disappears up the side of the road and walks towards these tree line of trees. And I'm watching him. And he disappears into the woods and into this line of trees. I don't think they were woods, but there was a whole a thick thing of trees right by there. He disappears into that uh, wooded area. And I'm still listening to music, and I still have the window up and the heat going. But when he went into those woods... I heard branches breaking. I literally heard branches breaking. And if I could hear that over all that, over the heater and the music and the and all and with the window up, I just could not imagine how loud it would be if there was total silence. You know, I'm I'm just staring at the tree line, even though I can't really see him. I'm just staring at this tree line, going, what the hell did I just see? What the, what the hell is going on here? I'm just sitting there terrified. And I must have sat there for 10 minutes, just staring at this tree line, wondering, is, is this thing going to reappear? Is it going to come back out and come at me or something? But he never did. But I sat there for like 10 minutes, terrified. My hands were shaking, and, and I could not believe what I was seeing. And my mind was playing over and over and over again in my head. And I'm sitting there thinking, afraid to move. And then, when I decided, okay, it's over with now, let's go home, I start to be on my way I start going and only then at that precise moment did I start seeing cars on the road and the 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 whole time the whole entire time that I was encountering this creature and sitting there terrified it had stopped raining right and but then and I finally decided, I'm leaving. And I start going. It was then traffic starts showing up. I see cars on the road. And it starts raining again. It literally started raining right, right at that moment. I 
go home. And it's, I mean, it's late at night. There is no one going to be up by the time I get home. Because it's so late. And I just go home and totally unbelieving what I saw. I could not believe it. And mm. to the, it's literally been around 36 years since I saw this when I was living on the coast. But something, something like that you just don't forget. I mean, it's just as clear in my mind as, as if it happened yesterday. Because something like that is just unbelievable. And I know for a fact that this must have been Bigfoot. And, you know, from the stories that they tell, you know, Bigfoot is spotted all over the United States and things like that. But what this, but what it, most people don't pick up on is that they make make it seem like this there is only one Bigfoot in the, on the entire planet. And, but yet yeah, he's seen all over the United States. And I don't know if he's seen it in other countries or not. But anyway, in the United States, he's seen all over. But it makes it, from the way people tell it, he's like one little Bigfoot making appearances all over the United States. You know, like no other Bigfoots exist. And he's been around for decades. So... If this Bigfoot is real, and if the one what I saw was a real Bigfoot, you know he's gotta. There's gotta be more than one. There is no way that one creature can make appearances all over the United States, and and there's also no way even a Bigfoot like himself could live live this long if he's spotted decades before I was even born. You know, there's no way any creature's going to live that long. Um, except for maybe a vampire. And I don't... That's one thing I don't believe exists in real life. <laughs> that's just in movies and books. For me, anyway. Um, there are some people that think they're vampires. But anyway. And... That is my story of what I think I saw as Bigfoot. Now, if anyone out there has a story to tell, please feel free to comment on my podcast uh, when you go to listen to it. And let me know if you saw any Bigfoot, or do you know somebody that did? And I, I happen to have a relative that, once said he he didn't really see Bigfoot, I don't think, as much as he heard him when uh, they were camping some somewhere. I don't remember where, but um, that was years ago also. There is still stories to this day about Bigfoot sightings. And 
even, I was just looking up things like that earlier, and even today there's uh, some stories out there about Bigfoot sightings. But tell me if you believe in Bigfoot and what and anything that you might have come across. And let me know what you think. And, uh, but yeah, that one photo I was talking about, you can find it anywhere on the, on the internet if you like to, uh, would like to uh, look at it. Just uh, look for a photograph by uh, Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson. Uh, look up Bigfoot photo. And there's a there's all kinds of information on it, and there's all kinds of TV shows on Bigfoot. I tend to think most of the TV shows might be made up, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I think I saw Bigfoot, and I know it wasn't no bear. Bears usually don't walk on two feet, and they don't have huge long arms. And not only were his arms long, but they were human-like. He had human-like hands. And you know bears don't have human-like hands. And I'm pretty sure that it wasn't a man in a suit, because even the most experienced actor or whatever might be, couldn't possibly mimic the famous Bigfoot walk that everybody talks about. And if you look up videos, I think you'll see the video of that most famous Bigfoot sighting that that ended up in that photograph that's, that's really famous by Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson. Anyway, um, I will probably bring you some other time more evidence about Bigfoot and different sightings about him if I find anything that comes up. This is uh, Bear Sweet Apple Podcast, and I want to wish you a good night and sweet dreams, and I will catch you later. Have a good night, everyone.